First of all, thank these guys. How good are they, right? So I got a couple PSAs. The first is we are going to be gathering around the communion table this morning. And um, where's Vicky? Vicky's up in the front here this morning. We had Judy that was here this morning. And this is not a gender-biased opportunity for you, I want you to know. However, for years, every Sunday morning, folks show up early to one or two services when we do communion, which we do once a month. And they fill up these cups and they break this bread. They, they break the matzah and they serve it to you. Um, and what I would like to do is I'd like to expand that team a little bit. This is about the easiest volunteer opportunity that we have available to you at Mendham Hills Community Church. I mean, if you're not doing anything here, if you're just sucking the marrow out of this ministry, <laughs> and you say to yourself, I don't think I'm going to do that, I've got nothing left to offer at that point. <laughs> so, all of that to say, Vicki would love to get some helpers. So if you would meet her right after church, she's going to go into that room, which is actually a kitchen, and she's going to be, you know, telling people, hey, you know, I'm looking for some helpers. So you can do that afterwards. The other thing is we have a, a team of 10 that left yesterday to go down to minister again to the community that God has called us to on top of the Guatemala City garbage dump. They are there right now. Let's pray for them together. Father, I have friends there. I have people from the community there that I know have a tertiary, a, a little, a small understanding of who you are. God, I pray for those that are, that are going on the trip and those that they will encounter that this will not be about work and it won't be about houses. Those things are all good. But that somehow the God of glory, the great God, the name above all names, would be made known on both sides of this mission equation to those that go and to those that receive. Pray you bring them back to us safely next week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we got a couple of children's ministry folks in the back. We have Katie Rubright, who is licking her Penn State wounds yet again this morning. And uh, she, <laughs> she will be taking your uh, up through fifth grade kids upstairs. And Steve Fisher, who is at the Rutgers-Wisconsin game. And, you know, a bounce of the ball in either direction. That could have gone the other way yesterday. He'll be taking all of our middle schoolers. Our high schoolers are going to stay in here. What I want to do, Caroline, would you do me a favor, please? Would you hand me that pack of papers? I want to show you guys, uh, we were going to do a, a, um, an interview this morning to, to share with the church the experience the men of our church had at a retreat that um, we were able to get away to a couple weeks ago. And uh, we, did, we did a survey, uh, an anonymous survey uh, on SurveyMonkey, and people could say whatever they wanted about this retreat. I'm telling you, you know, the elders and I uh, were... I said to the elders, I'm never taking another survey about anything I do because everything will look bad relative to the experience these 50 men had on this retreat. God did incredible things. And I, I was worried because we, we talked about deep, deep heart things. Darla, you could throw some pictures up here. Um, I keep forgetting. For those of you that are just coming in, power is out all down the street here. So we've got half our power and half not on. It doesn't usually look like this. But, uh, you know, it's a bunch of manly men doing manly things like dodgeball and... Uh, you know, you'll see some fun stuff going on up there. But there was some heavy stuff that went on um, dealing with our hearts. And C.S. Lewis said about men, because as men, what we tend to do is everything's in our head, right? Our knowledge is up here. We know about things. But we never let it get into our hearts. And what C.S. Lewis said, he said, it's as if they're men without chests. And so our goal this weekend was for as men that we would get the truth of God into our chests and not into our heads. 
and uh, it was profound. I was up there. I was talking about the wounds we pick up as, as, as young men that we, we live out of and we try to overcome our whole lives. And I looked out, and there was a lot of guys just weeping out there. And um, it was, that's enough for now. But there's Handsome Joe. He's down on top of the uh, garbage dump this morning. But we had a great time. And uh, I just want to make a couple things um, known. Number one, God really blessed our church with these women's retreats and these men's retreats this year. Over 110 people went to them combined. Um, that's a big chunk of folks. A lot of churches would love to have that. And uh, so we're going to be doing that again next year. Second thing is, if you were impacted uh, by this material as a guy, we had over 20 guys, well, I think 20 guys, say they wanted to continue to study this material. So we're going to be looking at starting a small group based on this material. That'll be starting up in January. So keep an eye out for it, all right? In the meantime, let's have the ushers come forward for this morning's offering, and we'll put our connection cards in there. And Let me just pray. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst for calling us to yourselves, for helping us not be a people that get it just with our heads, but not our hearts. And Lord, uh, as we give, um, we understand it's not you that needs the money. It's us that needs to, to learn to let go and to trust and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a lot of friends outside of the church, um, maybe an unusual amount for for a guy that's been in the church as long as I have. When you're in ministry, having friends outside of the church really helps you with sanity because otherwise you're just constantly talking about church in a sense they keep looking at you looking at you at your, as your role. The guy across the street, he can care less than I'm Pastor John. I'm just the goofball that lives across the street. In fact, when the door opened, he was out there at his fire the other night. He knows I'm the pastor, and he's, he's about, you know, a block away. And he sees my door open, and he screams out, God bless you! <laughs> and I like that. I like that, you know, I get to have some friends outside of the church, and, and, and they pull my chain about stuff. And I believe deeply in what I believe. Uh, I've given my life to pursuing and wrestling with Jesus um, making him known to people like my neighbors that I talk to him about. And here's the problem. When I, when I talk to my neighbors about, when I talk to people outside of this church, frankly, when I talk to people inside of our church, they start to ask, you ever notice that people have some pretty good questions about Christianity? Like, not easy ones? You know, you're hanging out with some friends, maybe watching a game, hanging over a coffee or a, or a beer or something, and the topic terms to religion. And maybe you have a rep around town like I do, right? Oh, well, you should, you know, oh, John, he's, he's a pastor of a church. Or, or Angie, oh, she goes to church every Sunday. Maybe you're like me. Some years ago when my family realized I was the religious guy, suddenly every time it was Thanksgiving, John now prays because he's the religious guy, right? And so, so when that happens, when you get some new people in the circle of friends and they find out that, you know, you're, you actually believe some of this stuff, they start to maybe kind of move over and ask you questions. Now, I don't have an evangelistic gift. See, I've never, gone, I've never shared with somebody my experience with Jesus and, and, and had them come to me and say, oh, tell me more about this man. I would like to right now lay down my life and follow him all of my days. I've never had that. Now, I've seen it happen where you're like, holy smokes. But I don't have that gift. See, when I talk to people about God, somehow they come back with really hard things. Like I have had said to me, I'm not exaggerating, I've had said to me, I can't understand how you could believe that because you don't seem weak enough to have to lean on that. Because we have that reputation out in the community a little bit. Oh, good. That God thing, that's for weak people. 
I've had said to me on a few occasions, you seem way too smart to actually believe that stuff. Now, I don't think it's because they think I'm that smart. I think it's because they think what I believe is that dumb and that I can't defend it and that I haven't thought it through and that it doesn't make a lot of sense. So they don't mean anything by it, but they're just kind of like taken back by it. Really, you, you believe this stuff? And then, you know, if I say I do, and maybe you've done this, you've had these conversations, if you actually kind of come out and say, yeah, I, I do believe it, then they start to ask hard questions like, you, so you believe all of those things in the Bible? You believe that? Then they'll start naming some things that would sound preposterous. They'll say, you believe that? And then they'll say, maybe you've heard this one, if there's a God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? How can you say there's a God? You watch the news at night, John? John, if God's as loving as you say is, then why is he sending so many innocent people to hell? Is that the God you believe in, John? You guys get these questions, or is it just me? Am I like the guy that's like drilled with these questions? Here's another one I get a lot. How could you possibly believe in organized religion when religion has been the cause of so much war and injustice over the centuries? You heard that one? My pat answer to that is, if you don't like organized religion, you should try disorganized religion. It's a real disaster. That's a joke. Not a good one. <laughs> See, here's the truth. They're, these are really good questions. They're, they're, there's not easy answers to them. Yet, the Bible calls you and I, as believers in Christ, not to be just like, well, I don't know any of the answer to these things. The Bible actually says that as followers, as believers, we should be able to give an answer to these questions. Because in a sense, if we could, it might impact somebody that you love and care about. And certainly somebody that God loves and cares about. God wants his people to be able to answer these questions. Now hear me this morning. Especially if you're not sure where you are with Jesus. Because this, you need to hear this from my heart. Okay? Jesus never, ever, ever, anywhere in the Bible, ever said, when you become a Christian, if you decide to follow me, what you need to do is check your brain at the door because no longer should you think about any of these things. You should just believe with blind faith. He never says that. Yet something seems to happen that when we cross this line of belief as, as Christians, it's like we don't want to investigate our faith anymore. We, we don't want to look into it because if we do, well, that might cause me to wonder. Uh, that's not what God's calling you to. God calls us people to be thinkers and investigators and even wrestlers with our faith. It shouldn't be people that are outside of the church that are asking the best and hardest questions. It should be people in the church. We should be leading the discussion on the tough questions. Even if the answer sometime is, I don't know. Because the truth is you're dealing with God. So over the next couple of weeks prior to Thanksgiving... I'm going to be doing just that. Hopefully you'll come back and you'll wrestle with answers to really difficult questions. We're going to ask difficult questions that people, your friends, are asking. Now, these might not lead to the most tantalizing of sermons, but as your pastor, I think there's times, you know, I've been asking God a lot about where he wants us to go as a church, and one of the things he keeps saying to me is you need, we need to grow up in our faith. This easy believism thing, without really understanding what it is we believe, is going to lead you to easily be led astray. This is why our children go off to school and they're so often just you know, told that all this is fallacy and phony and they believe it. This is why when somebody pushes you on your faith, you shrink back and you start to go, well, maybe I am stupid. Maybe I am weak. Maybe I should, just shouldn't answer these questions. Maybe I shouldn't really believe. 
Now, a couple things. We are going to be using it as a springboard. Um, Tim Keller's kind of renowned book, Reason for God, he wrote it a couple years ago. And the questions we're going to look at are essentially six questions. We won't get to all of them. They come out of his discussion guide. So if you want to follow along at home, you want to read some stuff, pick up Tim Keller's Reason for God. It's pretty heady stuff. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I think I'll make it a little bit easier. But that's where this is coming from. Um, and lastly, this. This is not an apologetics class. Right? Like, I can't, I only have a short amount of time up here. I can't go through every answer to every question and every, you know, facet of it. I can only hit it a little bit. What I hope I can do is give you enough to believe there is a good answer to these questions, that your faith is rooted in something that actually does make sense, and it isn't a fairy tale, and that as a result, you need to, you need to make a decision about, we need to make a decision about our faith one way or the other. And, and maybe it will spur you on to, to get with some friends and, and ask these questions. So let's get started today. We're going to start with maybe the most controversial thing Jesus says in all of the Bible, especially in the culture that we live in today. In John 14, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm not going to be around much longer. He says, in fact, I'm going to be with my Father who is in, in heaven. One of the disciples, Philip, says, Jesus... How can, we, you know, show, how can we get there? We'd like to go to, what is the way to heaven? And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Listen to this in terms of religious intolerance. No one comes to the Father except by me. See, the, the questions people outside of the church ask about our faith are good questions, especially when verses like this are just kind of sprung out there. Because the truth is that, that over the years, Christians have been very, very judgmental people, tough people. In our day and age of pluralism and political correctness and inclusion, these words are probably the most controversial thing Jesus ever said. And if you have friends like me, here's what they say. They said, John, don't you think it's a little presumptuous to think that your religious beliefs are right, but everybody else's religious beliefs are wrong? You don't sense any arrogance in that? What they might say is they might put up a pie chart kind of like this one. Check this out. The truth is, as we sit here on Sunday morning, most people don't agree with us. 30% of the world, approximately, would, de would define themselves as Christian. But the truth is, if you're around the church long enough, you also know that 30% of the of people that define themselves as Christian really aren't taking this all that seriously. So we are, even, even self-professed, in the, in the great minority of faiths in the world. Boy, isn't it a little arrogant for you people to think that you know the way and the 70-plus percent of them don't? John, isn't it thoughts like this from organized religion that are responsible for so much of the hatred and war in the world? I mean, doesn't believing that, if you really believe that, lead to intolerance at its best and violence at its worst? They'd go on to say maybe even with a little more passion and maybe one more drink. So are you telling me I'm going to hell? These are tough conversations. So I think we have to start with a confession, right? Especially for those of you this morning who, who aren't believers and are wrestling with it. The truth is that, yes, religious arrogance and intolerance and contempt for others has been a problem, a huge problem over the millennia. You don't need to look any further than the Middle East and, and ISIS and Jihad and the Taliban 
to see that religious arrogance and intolerance is no doubt dangerous. But I have to be honest with you, just pointing my fingers there is a cop-out. Because the truth is, over the millennia, some of the greatest atrocities, some of the most arrogant, intolerant, venomous, angry, self-righteous, judgmental, exclusive people have been Christians. So in a way, my friends are right. So this talk in this series really, especially in our day and in our neighborhoods and with my friends, has to be done in a spirit of repentance for what we've said and done over the years. And humility, because the truth is, the one that we follow has no patience for religious intolerance. If you want to see who Jesus always gets mad at, it's the people that are intolerant. Religious people that are intolerant. That's who he's always yelling at. In fact, Jesus says don't be intolerant of your non-believing neighbor or your different believing neighbor. What does he say you should do about that neighbor? You should love him. So this isn't a discussion of who's right and who's wrong. We have to enter it with a deep call to humility. We have to live side by side in love with our neighbors. And, and we're following this Jesus who, who, in a world of religious exclusivity that was much worse than today, in a world where the temple was uh, for men at certain places only, and there was only other places in the temple where certain believers could go. Jesus walks into that place, into that religiously exclusive area, and he starts hanging out with prostitutes and, and tax collectors and having parties. And then he's a rabbi. This crazy rabbi gets down on his knees, and he starts washing the feet of those that are lower than him. In what's probably, to the world, there's never been told a greater story of humility. Everybody knows that story. And so Jesus has this rep amongst his people as, I am the humble king. Yet, 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 this humble king, this model of humility says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Those are tough, those are tough words. So we got to look at, and we got to answer the question, we need to be able to answer the question why we think that is true and why we are not religious and elitist snobs. And the best way to answer that question is to first start to look at what Jesus said about himself. You with me? So let's take a look at what Jesus said, not what we say about him, not what his followers say about him. Let's look and see what Jesus said about himself. We'll start with John 14, verse 9. Jesus, after he says, I am the way, I am, nobody's coming to the Father except by me. Philip, Philip's confused, like most of the disciples, they never totally got Jesus' divinity, right? Even if you remember post-resurrection, they're still not sure of his divinity. Pre-resurrection, they're totally confused by it in many ways. So Philip looks at him and goes, you know what? Just show us the Father. If you would show us the Father, then I would believe God. And Jesus answers him and he goes, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. This is Jesus responding to, to this claim that he was the only way. And he takes it and he responds to an audience where claiming such a thing is heresy at the highest level. Where claiming such a thing would actually be the reason that he gets crucified. He claims it publicly and he says, I am equal. My divinity is the same as that of God's. So in John 8, Jesus is getting questioned about his authority, and his accusers say to him, who do you think you are to tell people that if they follow you, you won't see death? 
Even Abraham, the father of our faith, even Abraham, who's the patriarch, even Abraham, who, who was the beginner of all of this faith, this monotheism, even Abraham died. Jesus, who do you think you are to say, to say these things? To which Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw and was glad. And they essentially said, what? This is what they said, honestly. I mean, without maybe some of the, some of the colorful language. Are you out of your freaking mind? You're, 50, you're not even 50 years old. This is what the scripture says. Not a, are you out of your freaking mind? But it says, you're not even 50 years old. How can you claim to have known Abraham? To which Jesus says, in a very famous verse, John 8, 5, 58, very truly, I'm telling you this, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. What? Jesus starts telling people, you need to understand something about me. I stand outside of time. I am the pre-existent creator. See, one of the things that critics would say about Jesus was, well, you know, he was a great teacher. He got, he, there's been lots of great teachers over the years, and they get their egos swollen, and they begin to claim divinity. Heck, John, if you go back in the history books, you'll see even at Jesus' time when he lived, the Caesars would say that they're God. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't just claiming to be divine, but he's claiming divine history. He's claiming divine experience. He's claiming divine power, powers. He says, oh, Abraham, yeah, Abraham, Abraham and I are buds. Yeah, yeah, Abraham was really happy when he heard about this, that I was going to become a, I know Abraham. What? What do you do with that? And it wasn't just Jesus that claimed he was divine. It wasn't just his followers that said he claimed to be divine. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, we don't really know. We have people that, we have, we have Jesus that's saying some of these things. We're not so certain about him. We have some of his followers that are saying these things. But you need to see that the scripture always also points out that over and over, his enemies said these things. John 5, 17 to 18. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What did Jesus say about himself? What did those that were his enemies say he said about himself? Again, John 10, 33. They look at Jesus and they say, we're not stoning you for any good works that you did, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. In other words, you can't just say it's an invention of the early church that Jesus was God. Maybe he never claimed it. Maybe they just put the words, the followers put those words in his mouth. See, even his enemies tell you that, yes, this guy claimed to be God. How about this one? This one had social significance that was crazy in its day from Mark. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, get the, first of all, this was very powerful in, in, in Israel today. To claim that you could forgive sins was saying that you were divine. But let's just bring it into the realm of common sense, okay? 
Let's say that I went on Mischief Night. Let's just say I went on Mischief Night over to, I don't know, Straz's house. And I started to egg the snot out of that place. Right? <laughs> now, I wouldn't do that because I have a slight amount of fear about Chris. But let's say I did that. And I egged that house. It would make perfect sense for Chris and I, for Chris to come out, and because he's a newfound creature in Christ, not to express any anger or frustration, but to express forgiveness. And to look at me and say, John, my son, even if you don't repent, I forgive you. But what sense would it make for Wayne to say to John, oh, about that thing that you did to Chris's house, don't worry, I forgive you. It makes no sense. You see, it, the only person that can forgive a sin is the person on whom the transgression was committed. If I cheated on my wife, Vicky forgiving me makes no sense. Yet Jesus, throughout Scripture, over and over, keeps claiming this power. He keeps claiming relative to sin that he doesn't need to go and check with anybody. He doesn't need to check with Jonah, Chris. He just keeps claiming that the sin was actually committed against him. Very powerful stuff. It's lunacy of the first order if he's not who he said he is. For all these reasons, Keller would conclude that what you can't do with Jesus, to be fair, is you can't do with Jesus what we're doing, what we even do in the Christian church all the time is say, you know, he was a great teacher, he was a great prophet, he had a lot of good things to say, and so what we'll do is we will take him with all of the other great prophets, with, with all of the other religious leaders, you know, and we will take him and we will put him on the shelf with all the others. You can't do that. He's either much higher than Buddha or Muhammad, or he's much lower. But his own claims about himself mean that you can't treat him just like everyone else. Even Jesus', is, even Jesus kind of side claims, his indirect claims are amazing. How about when his disciples come back and they say, Jesus, we were out and we ran into some of this demonic stuff that was going on. And so what we did was we tried to cast demons out in your name. And do you know, Jesus, that these demons obeyed? You know, Jesus looks at him and goes, oh, that, you know. Glad you brought that up. Now, I, you know, I kind of I remember this now. I remember Satan falling out of heaven like lightning and being cast down to earth. What? What do you do with this man? How about this one? How about in Matthew 23? Jesus makes an offhanded comment to, to, to those that are, that, that are uh, persecuting others. He says, look, I keep sending you prophets and you keep flogging them and killing them. Now get that, he doesn't say, God keeps sending you prophets. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say, I am a prophet. He says, I keep this pre-existent force that has been in existence eternally. I, that live now, have been sending you for centuries prophets, and you keep killing them and stoning them. Go back to the Old Testament, right? You could read Ezekiel, you could read Isaiah, you could read Jeremiah, and every pronouncement that they would make to the people of Israel, they would come over them and they would say, you should do this or you shouldn't do that, and they would say, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. All through the Old Testament. Do you ever hear Jesus say, thus saith the Lord? What you hear Jesus say is, truly, truly, I say unto you, What do you do with this guy? 
So you can't just put them up on the shelf with everybody else and say, well, maybe all roads lead to the same place. Jesus never lets you do that. Now, you might say, well, my friends aren't Bible scholars, and I'm not sure that they'd exactly believe in some of this stuff, and a lot of this is old. Do you have anything more contemporary for me? Is there anybody else that they might respect and believe that, that thinks this way? So I started saying, well, maybe there's some, some contemporary biblical scholars that I could share with my church that would say, yeah, I can grab onto that for my friend. So I found a very popular contemporary biblical uh, scholar named Bono. Are you familiar with Bono? From you too? This is great stuff. This is from Bono, okay? This is really good. He's getting interviewed, and Jesus comes up in the interview. And the guy essentially says, do you, you believe this? It's kind of far-fetched. And Bono says this. He says, look, he says, the secular response to Christ, the Christ story, always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously, he was a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of the other great prophets, be they Elijah or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. He's saying, no, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. Don't call me a prophet. I'm the Messiah. I'm God incarnate. And people, Bono goes on, throughout the centuries have said, no, 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 no. Just be a prophet. We can handle the prophet thing. We can take that. Now, you're a bit eccentric, but we've had John over the centuries, right? He ate locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, the Romans, but I actually am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, Oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with, according to Bono, the great biblical scholar, is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or he's a complete and utter nutcase. And I mean nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. He goes on, I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its, face cha its fate change and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. And he concluded with this. I love this regarding Jesus. He says, if only we could be a little bit more like him, the world would be transformed. When I look at the cross of Christ, what I see up there is all of my, and I won't say how he described it, but we'll clean it up and say crud. And everybody else's. So I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? It's a question of eternity. What does Jesus say? I know what they say I am. Who do you? Church, who do you say that I am? Is he, is, who, is he who he said he was, or is he a religious nut? But you cannot put him on the bookshelf with everybody else. He doesn't let you. Yet I fear, those of us who claim his name, don't take this question seriously enough. N.T. Wright, now this is a biblical guy, biblical scholar. He has a great quote. Listen to this quote. He just nails where we live so often. North American, Christian, fish bumper sticker on our cars, God's going to help me get a promotion, people. 
Listen to this. He just nails it with this. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. You can't put it on that shelf. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, it's nonsense, and it's a bit of deceitful play acting. And he concludes with this, Menham Hills Community Church, most of us, most of us are unable to cope with saying either of those two things, so we condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Ooh, that's good. Keller in his work goes on to say, he's right, I believe you'll see that in the end. You simply can't like Anybody who makes claims like those of Jesus, either he's a wicked liar or he's a crazy person and you shouldn't have anything to do with him or he is who he said he is and your whole life has to revolve around him and you have to throw everything at his feet eventually and say, command me. Or do you live your life in the misty world in between? You can't live there and have integrity. Do you pray to Jesus when you're in trouble and otherwise mostly ignore him because you get busy? Either Jesus can't hear you because he's not who he says he is, or if he is who he says he is, he's got to become the turning point of your entire world, the center on which your life evolves and exists. That's the choice. I love the misty in between, though. Now, you might be thinking, John, I get it. What about the people in India? Have you had the what about the people in India question? What about the Hindus and the Muslims? What do I do in light of the fact that Jesus says he's the only way to heaven, yet in Asia where most of the world's population live, they all think differently. I mean, when the world's predominantly something else, how can you say that Jesus is the only way? And when people ask you this question, and it's a good question, I want you to hear what underlies it. What I've heard from some Christians along the these people are stiff-necked people, they're haters of the truth. That's not what your friend is asking you when he asks you that question. What he asks you, what he's asking, the fundamental question of his heart is, does God care more than I do? Because when you keep telling me he's the only way, and I know that most of the people in the world don't believe, I'm worried about them, and you seem to indicate that God doesn't care. Do I care? Because what kind of God would this be? Does God care more than I do? I get the what about people in India all the time. I never knew people in New Jersey were so concerned about the people in India until you start to share God with them. See, the problem with, with Christians over the centuries is when we get that, we get, very, we get very divisive. I'm sorry, there is but one way, there is one mediator between heaven and earth, and it is Jesus Christ, and unless you confess with your mouth that he is Savior, all the rest are doomed to hell. And there might be truth in that statement, but the way we communicate it over the centuries has essentially said this, we are the least caring people on the place of the earth. Because they're looking for a God that cares, and you're sharing with them a God that doesn't. And you're sharing with them a wrong God. We can't be people that say, all that matters is that we're okay, and everybody else can go to hell. Are all religions the same? The truth is they're not. I mean, I'd like to tell you they are. You know, I don't need to be right. One of the things that's frustrated me even over the last couple of years is every time somebody that's, that's a great teacher comes out, and he might say something controversial, 
everybody just kind of damns them to hell too. Well, you know, now you're out. Goodbye to you. You're, you know, we don't agree with you anymore. I would like to say that they're all the same. But intellectually, that wouldn't be fair on two levels. Number one, Jesus doesn't let me do it. He says, you can't put me up there with all these other guys. I'm claiming to be something quite different. And frankly, it would be an insult to those of other faiths. One author said, look, you can take all of the world's religions, that whole pie chart, and you can break it into two pieces. There's two kinds of religions. They're legalistic or they're fatalistic. If you look at them, all religions say one of two things about God. God is either aloof, in other words, he's the kind of above it all, sitting in judgment of man, or God's impersonal, he's some kind of vague, unknowing spirit or force with no personhood. And so if you believe that God is aloof, that he sits up there and he's, he's not close to man, he's not, he's not in relationship with man, that leads to legalism and rules and rituals and criteria to strive towards so that God might accept you. That's not what Jesus came to claim. The other is, is fatalistic. You have no control of your destiny. It's all been decided. These two views form all religions. There's, there's nuances, right? Like Islam. Islam essentially says that at the end of the day, you do all of your good works. You strive hard and you pray and you do your good things. And at the end, we don't really know, but Allah will decide. Buddhism and Hinduism, they believe in a non-personal God. That God is kind of spirit and in a sense he's within us. And, and we can cycle through different lives and different levels in ourselves. And we can get to them. If you drive down Main Street in Chester, you'll see, I think it's the Masonic temple that's got a thing that says right out front the light is within you every religion believes that god is either aloof and impersonal or aloof or excuse me or impersonal he's either sitting in judgment of you or he can't be known he's just a spirit but this is not jesus and to understand why you have to just go back to the garden for a minute back to the garden and i know i do this all the time with you but if you miss the story see god creates you and when he finishes with man his highest project he looks at him and he says, you're not just good, you're very good. And then God gently picks up, you would imagine, Adam and, and breathes his life into Adam because God is the author of life. No God, no life. And he says to man, he goes, I've laid before you a choice, Adam. I'm giving you freedom to choose and, and you can exercise your will. And even in this garden right now, you can choose between two trees. You can choose between two roads. And he says, eat freely. You're free to do whatever you like. But understand that one tree leads to me and to life and the other to separation and to death. And he looks at Adam and he looks at you and me. He says, listen, choose life. Choose life. God is the breath of life. God is life. And see, this is, this is the scripture. This is underpinning all of scripture. You have the ability to choose. Choose this day, life or death. Now, you might say, why would God, with all of the stuff that went wrong, allow free will? What a horrible conclusion. The reason is that God created us with free will because he created you and I to be an object of his love. And there is no love without free will. There is no love without choice. The only reason freedom exists is for love to exist. You want to see it in the scriptures? I'll show you one more place and then we'll wrap up. It's in Deuteronomy. Same story as back in the garden. God says to his people, See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. 
For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. And then you'll live and you'll increase. And the Lord will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you're not obedient it, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, if you're drawn away to other gods, if you're drawn into believing that everything's the same, if you're drawn into believing that there's a myriad of gods and everybody has their own way to them, if you're drawn in believing that, I declare to you this day that you're, you're going to die. You're not going to live long in the land. God again is saying, if you choose other gods, if you choose other paths, my people, I want you to understand you can do that, but there is no life there. He says, this day, I call the heavens and the earths as witnesses against you that I have set before you, here it is again, I have set before you life and death and blessings and cursings. Now, why does God do this? Why does he seem so needy? Why, does he, why is he making us, giving us this choice? Why is he making us choose him? Now, choose life. That's the core of what he wants for us to choose. But why is he so insistent that we choose him? Why is God so needy? Right? Like he's like an old girlfriend. Why is he so narcissistic? He says, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. And if you read this without understanding, you might come to the conclusions that I mentioned about God, that he's needy. He needs us to worship him. Why is he doing to us, pushing himself on, uh, on us like this? But he finishes by, like this. He says this, for the Lord is your life. One writer said, it's not like God is upset because you're filling in the blanks wrong. It's not because on the multiple choice test, the answer was C and you said A. God's saying, I'm laying before you a choice whether to live or to die. And I don't want you to die. I am the only way to life. God's not telling us he's going to kill us because we didn't choose the right answer. He's telling that the only way you're going to live is to be with me. And so when we don't choose him, we choose separation. We choose death. God is the source of life, and outside of him there is no life. See, it turns out it's a false question. This isn't about which religion is right and wrong. It's about who is the author and the giver of life. So when Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus isn't saying as we would read it, hey, you idiots, you better pick me or you're dead. What he's saying is, nobody else cares about you. Now you might say, but, but what about all these prophets? What about these other paths? And I think that Jesus would say, look at them. Investigate every one of them. In every one of them, you will see not one of them has come for you. In Buddhism and Hinduism, you cycle and you center down into your own spirit and energy. In Islam, Allah, Allah is not coming for you. You can work and you can work and you can work and you can strive and you can strive and you can strive and you can pray and you can pray and you can pray. And at the end, you hope that Allah will forgive you. Have you ever tried to live up to living up to God's expectations? Because I have and I can't. Why does Jesus say there's only one way? 
Again, one writer said, it's not the bad news from his perspective. He's giving you the bad news from reality. No one else is coming for you. There is no other God that loves you. There is no other God that is passionately pursuing you and longs to heal you from your brokenness. And that's why he says this, Jay, choose life. Because God is your life. And while I would love to say that it doesn't matter what you choose, there's many ways. The scripture says that's not true. It's so different. They're different. When Jesus says it's the only way, he's not trying to establish some arrogant, narcissistic exclusivity, some kind of religion triumphing over some other kind of religion, and we're going to war and force it on each other. What he's telling you is, I am the one who loves you. I am the one who's pursuing you. I am the one who is the only one who's ever been willing to pay the price and the ransom for your soul. Choose me and live. Band's going to come up. God is not trying to stop you from finding other sources of life. He's trying, as he always has been, to, to try to get you to stop choosing death. Because God wants you to live. God's for you. God's for life. Let's gather around the communion table this morning. I'm going to have the, the elders will come up and...